We want to thank you for tuning in to the Indian Run Christian Church podcast with Pastor Terry Bailey. This podcast can be found on iTunes by searching for Terry Bailey Ministries. Right now, let's get to Pastor Terry's insightful message. Continuing in my quest eventually to have preached all 150 of the Psalms uh, up to Psalm 88 today. It's kind of a dark psalm. If you just read it, there's not a single encouraging word in the whole thing. I picked just those few verses in the middle to carry the thought. But you may read the whole psalm and you won't find anything any more encouraging than what I read. I want to do three things then as we consider this text. One, I want us to really understand the background and the tone of this psalm. Two, I want always for us to be prepared to defend the word of God, and so I will seek to equip you for that. And third, I want us to get the answers to the questions that are put forth in this psalm. Beginning with understanding the background of the psalm, it's one of the psalms of the sons of Korah, and I did that in more detail last week, so I I won't go back through that. If you're interested in the history, you can check the podcast for last week's sermon, or just come to me and I'll I'll run through that whole business with you again. But uh, the, the end of it is that David appointed three men, Asaph, Ethan, and Heman, one each from the three clans of the tribe of Levi who were given the care of the tabernacle. One each, one man each from each of those clans, Asaph, Ethan, and Heman, to preside over the writing and leading of worship music for the nation of Israel. Some of the 11 psalms of the sons of Korah that we have are from the descendants of Heman, who of these three was descended from Korah. But this one is from Heman himself. There in the first generation of that task of writing sacred music. And it comes toward the end of Heman's life. More on that In just a moment, if you read the part there at the heading of the psalm that we usually skip over, this psalm is called a maskil, which means that it's meant to be didactic, to teach you something. Some of the psalms simply express or affirm a truth. This one intends to teach you something. And it is instructed that the psalm be sung after the way of Mahalath, Lenoth. Well, those two words have specific meanings. The word Mahaloth is sometimes uh, in the Old Testament the, the name of a couple of women, and its root meaning is tender. But we, we sometimes only understand the derived meaning of tender. We think of a tender touch being a gentle touch, but the reason for that is you go back to the real root meaning of tender. It means sore. It means that it's hurt. If I have a tender shoulder, it's hurt. If I want you to touch it gently, it's because if you don't, it will hurt more. It's tender. And Mahalath means sick 
So the psalm is meant to be sung in a way that conveys the impression that the singer or singers are sick and sore. That's bright and happy news. Sing it as though you were sick and sore. And we, we, we all understand this. How many of you have ever looked at a person's face, just looked at their face and said, that person is in pain? Just heard their voice, just heard them say a few words and said, that person is not feeling well. Watch them take a couple of steps and known instantly, oh, it's the lower back. It's the hip. You know these things when you see them and this psalm is to be sang in a way that conveys all those things that you sometimes see in people's face and posture and hear in their voices. Sick and sore. I combed through my memory trying to think of more or less popular songs that conveyed this impression of Mahaloth Linoth. And we're going to play one here in just a minute, but I need to say a few words of warning uh, about it before we play it. It is not a song that I would normally play in church, and I struggle with whether or not to play it this time. The song is called Hurt. It is originally a Nine Inch Nails song. Now, just out of curiosity, any Nine Inch Nails fans... One, one, that's the same number as in the eight o'clock service. <laughs> one, nine inch nails fan present. Uh, I'm going to play the version sung by Johnny Cash. One, because I think he did a better job of it. And two, because when Johnny Cash sings it, it becomes something that it was not in the Nine Inch Nails version. Now, one of the reasons that I'm cautious about playing this song, I completely understand that it is in part about a man who is sick and sore and desperate and in part turns to drugs to try to eradicate the hurt from his life. And I'm not trying to preach that message and neither is the song. It doesn't make a positive thing about that, but I want you to know that that is in it. And Johnny Cash sings it from the perspective of a man who has had his own experience with trying to medicate away his pain with alcohol and other substances. Second, this is one of the last songs that Johnny Cash did. And when he did it, he was old. And the song becomes about his age and the fact that he has already lost almost all of the people that he loves. And that he is facing the prospect of all the energies that he has devoted into his youth and the things that were the product of those energies just kind of going away as the grave draws near. For these reasons, he makes a pretty good rendering of Mahala Linoff. 
a song from a heart that is sick and sore. song off there even though in the last verse it has a lot of more explicit Christian imagery because in the middle Johnny includes a clip from a film that he once made that has a mild profanity in it and perhaps I strain at the gnat and swallow the camel (laughs) but there I cut it but how many of you heard sick and sore this is the mode for the 88th Psalm. And for largely the same reasons, Heman is old and frail. And he has already said goodbye to almost everyone he loves. And he is shut out from the activities of his youth and his strength. Now I'm not there yet, but I begin to understand it. This last week, one of my tasks was to get enrolled in a Medicare Advantage plan. Joy. The week before that, I had to submit the paperwork to start the payments in July for the pension that I have been paying into all these years. And a couple of weeks before that, I had this experience. My, my clergy ID for the hospitals broke. The plastic just got old and brittle, and, and it broke. And I had to go down into the bowels of Altman Hospital to the security office and have a new one made up. I had to present my old broken one so they 
took me a new picture and they made me a new card and they handed me back my old broken one and my new one and the part that was broken off only had words on it. The part with the picture was still whole. So I'm looking at these two pictures, one from 1995, one from two weeks ago. So that's what 28 years looks like. That's what it does to you. I begin to understand. And I know that my understanding will grow. He even regards himself, if you read the whole psalm, as being so close to the grave as to make no never mind, no distinction necessary. I'm so near dead. And it worries him. Considering this moment when his last strength, and I say last because almost all his former strength is already gone, when his last strength fails and he topples into the grave. This man who has spent his life writing praises to God, considering and expounding the glory and the joy and the beauty of walking with the Lord, what will come of all of that when I am dead? It's a real question. And we understand it. Heman has seen wonders. First of all, David became king and appointed him into his position. And that seemed like a thing that was impossible, that just couldn't ever happen, that David should overcome, or actually that God should overcome for David, all the colossal obstacles that stood in his path to the throne and somehow keep him alive and bring him to his reign. Heman has seen wonders, but he wonders. Will God still work wonders for the dead? Heman has known love and has been separated from it. Heman has known strength and purpose and is increasingly separated from it. Will, he asks, God's loving kindness be declared in the grave? And if it is, will the dead hear and rise to the voice of the Lord? Or will all light of love and insight and genius just be swallowed up in that great coming dark. Heman wants to know. Heman is not Alone. Hence the mood and mode of this psalm. 
Now having said that, let me interrupt the flow to do a little bit of apologetics again. I always want to equip you as best I can to defend your faith and to defend the scripture. And there is a point here that I think is worth making. Critics of the Bible, one of the, one of the many things that the skeptical critics say is you can't accept the Bible as a whole because there is too much discontinuity between the old and the new covenants. We want to make it one faith document. They say they are two contradictory and opposed documents. One example they cite, they say there is nothing in the Old Testament to support the idea of the resurrection of the dead. Now, just just so you know, before I get to the end of this, I say, well, fooey on that. But this is what they say. Nothing in the Old Testament to support any teaching or doctrine of the resurrection for the dead. They say that teaching is a product of the late intertestamental period, those those late time of the 400 years that passed between Malachi and Matthew when God wasn't sending any prophets for a while, that those people invented the doctrine of the resurrection for the dead not that long before Jesus Christ appeared on the scene and it becomes a staple for the New Testament that it is completely contradictory to everything that the Old Testament teaches and therefore there is no continuity to the Bible. This, they say, that the teaching of the resurrection was manufactured late and from whole cloth. Hmm. It's interesting to me that Jesus had a discussion with the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And they would agree with the modern skeptics. They would say that the Bible, as they defined it, which was only the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Sadducees accepted no more than that. They would agree with the skeptics saying, the Bible says nothing, the Old Testament. They didn't think it was the Old Testament, Yorkshire. Says nothing about the resurrection of the dead. And in their discussion with Jesus, they tried really hard to make the whole idea of the resurrection look silly. And they tried to force Jesus over into this corner by saying, well, see, what if you have this woman and she marries a man and he dies, so she marries his brother and he dies, so this keeps up until she has married all seven brothers in one family and every one of them dies. When she dies and everyone is in this life to come that you speak of, whose wife will she be then, huh? Because she was married to all of them. And Jesus' first answer is, you have completely under, misunderstood the nature of the life to come. And then he cuts to the chase because their real thing is that there is no resurrection. And he says, 
Did you miss what God said about the resurrection of the dead? What God said where? Well, what God said in your scriptures, Jesus is implying. Did you just miss what God said about the resurrection of the dead? And then he picks a verse from the books that they accept, from the first five books. said, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And I understand this thought, and I understand why Jesus picked an example from their accepted books, but I think that the question applies to the larger Old Testament too. And I would say to the critics today, The same thing that Jesus said to the Sadducees. Did you just miss what God said about the resurrection from the dead in the Old Covenant? And then I would begin to show it this way. Psalm 16.10, David says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay, or in the older verse, corruption, in the grave. Now, never mind that this is generally understood to be a messianic prophecy, in which case it is certainly talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if you set that aside, it is possible to argue, as the skeptics do, well, he's not talking about a resurrection. He's just saying, I'm in this struggle with these other guys, and they're going to die, and I'm going to live. They're going to see corruption in the grave, but I'm going to go on. Ha-ha! And it is possible to try to read it that way, but... It's such a prevailing sentiment in the Psalms. You have to put it all together. Psalm 49.15, God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will, by the way, Sheol, the grave, same thing. God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol. For he will receive me. Redeem means to buy back. To redeem someone from the power of Sheol assumes that they have first passed into it, into the grave, and are somehow bought back from the grave. And the explanation reinforces that. You will redeem me from the power of the grave because you will receive me. Receive me when? Where? This doesn't seem to be talking about, ha, I will live one more day. This is talking about an overthrow of the power of the grave. In Psalm 71, 20, You, that is God, who have shown me many troubles and distresses, will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Uh, Even if I just concentrate on the Psalms, I have a hard time thinking that David isn't hinting about something to come that overthrows the power of death. And then if I look forward from David, how many of you remember 
those stories from the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, the resurrection from the dead of the various widow's son and the man who was being carried to his grave for burial and was cast upon the bones of Elisha and that man rose from the dead and that's not all of them, but you get the idea. There were people who died and they were called back and there was something to come back and it came back and they were resurrected from the dead right there in the heart of the Old Testament. And and we could go on like this for a while, but I'll just do two more things. One, if you go back to the book of Job and, and go to the 19th chapter, and I want you to understand Job is the oldest written document of all the books of the Old Testament. And this makes sense because if we believe, as we are told, that Moses wrote the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if we believe, as we are given to understand, that Job is a contemporary of Abraham, then we know that Job lived a long time before Moses did. And Moses writes the other books down finally some centuries later. But if there's any eyewitness testimony about Job, it's from before that. I say that so I can say this. The word of God in Job is the oldest that we have in any written eyewitness form. So from the start of the Old Testament. Job 19, verses 25, 6, and 7. As Job considers his long streak of suffering and the inevitable death that is looming over him, he says. As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last, he will take his stand on the earth, even after my flesh is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another's. Now people work awfully hard, I have read and watched them do it, they work awfully hard trying to turn this into some other kind of thought that has nothing to do with the resurrection of the dead. But I don't see why you should bother. It is obvious to me that it's about the resurrection from the dead. Job also expects to be bought back at the end. And even though his flesh has been destroyed, to see God with his own eyes. As far back as you can go in the Old Testament. And then the last, moving near the end, the ministry of Daniel. Last of the major prophets. Chapter 12 verse 2. And as I read this, I want you to try in your heads to make this about something besides the resurrection of the dead. Ready? I want you to try hard. Try hard. Give it your best shot to make this about something that isn't the resurrection of the dead. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Some 
to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Okay, anybody succeed? Do I need to read it again? Give you another chance? One more try. Remember, your assignment is to make this about something that isn't the resurrection of the dead. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, some to everlasting life, others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. From as early as you can get in the Old Covenant to the very end, I say to the skeptics, did you just miss what God said about the resurrection from the dead? And I say to myself, Jesus is vindicated. Well, duh. Third, I've considered the nature of the 88th Psalm, and I have attempted to equip us to defend our faith and God's Word. But what about the answers to the questions that weighed so heavily on Heman's mind? Will you still accomplish wonders? For the dead, which is an important question to Heman because he is, after all, about to become one of them. Will you still accomplish wonders from the dead? Perhaps we should ask those people who, upon the death of Jesus, were recalled from the tomb and went forth to witness about him and who he was and what he was doing to their friends and family and neighbors. Will God's loving kindness be declared in the grave? You should go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, where what it says is that Jesus, while he was in the grave, preached to those souls who had been disobedient in the times of the Old Testament so that they too might hear the word of the gospel. And God's loving kindness is declared in the grave. Will there be light in that great darkness? And will the dead hear the voice of God and rise? Jesus spoke to Mary and Martha who were overcome by grief at the passing of their brother Lazarus. And Mary and Martha already had some faith in a great resurrection to come at the last time, but Jesus said to them, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me will live even if he dies. Do you believe this? And they said, yes, we believe. And Jesus said, 
roll away the stone from the mouth of the tomb. That he spoke with the authority of the everlasting Son of God to a man four days dead in his grave. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead heard the word of the Lord and rose. The answers to Heman's questions are yes, yes, and yes. God will work wonders for the dead. His loving kindness will be declared in the grave. And the dead will hear the declaration and rise. It's a dark psalm written by a man whose mind was darkened by a difficult time. But God is so good to answer our questions and overwhelm our doubts. And maybe you find yourself in need of this very thing today. We all have doubts. We all have questions. Let me encourage you to bring them to the God of answers and assurances. And He will meet you. We all worry about what's going to happen when. Let me encourage you to place it into the hands of the God who already knows. And has made provision. Whatever other question. Whatever other need you may have. Let me encourage you. Bring it to God. We want to take a moment to thank all of you. Our faithful listeners. For setting aside time each week. For the Indian Run Christian Church Podcast. You can find out more about the church by visiting our website at www.christforeastcanton.com. That's www.christforeastcanton, all one word, dot com. On behalf of Pastor Terry and all the folks at Indian Run Christian Church, I pray God's blessing on you and your family.